I have a message today that I doubt you've ever heard. I've never heard it preached. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm original. I'm saying God has put something in my heart that I think will help us and give us some freedom from our own mental captivity, those of us who are saved. I want to talk to you about, and I haven't decided on the best title, but um, the purifying fire of affliction. Or that your temptations can actually sanctify you for God's use instead of it being the opposite, like people so often think. I want to tell you a story first, and then I'll get into Scripture. This, uh, you might laugh, you might cry. I went to see a, a band play the other night, one of my favorite new bands. They're called St. Paul and the Broken Bones. And they're a soul funk jazz band from Alabama. The guy literally used to be an accountant, and he wears suits, and he's a little chubby, fat, white guy that, that looks really nerdy. And you hear him sing, and it's, oh man, amazing. The girls that were there, I had a glimpse of what it must have been like to hear Elvis, because I kept seeing them grab their chest and cry. <laughs> and one of them said, he's breaking my heart. I can't stand it. So I'm at this show. And uh, the name of their band, St. Paul, is because his buddies were, were poking fun at him because he doesn't drink or smoke, and his name's Paul, so they named the band to make fun of the guy. And so a good, good band, you know, good, nothing bad about it. And, and I'm here at this, it's called Live on the Green downtown, and surrounded by thousands of lost, lost, lost people. And I don't know why so many kids were there like 15, 16 years old. There was so much smoke where I was standing, and I'm not talking about tobacco smoke, that after I got a shower, the smell was still in my beard. I had beer all over me. I almost got in a fight. This guy came up and stood beside me. I, was, I made it up to the front and was standing on the railing, and he put his arm through my arm and was holding onto the railing, and I was like... It's kind of weird. And I looked down and I said, do you want to switch sides with me? And the poor guy was so stoned he didn't even know what he was doing. And his little friend who was with him, beautiful little blonde girl, about 21, 22, named Lori, the more I talked to her, the more brokenhearted I became that they're searching to fill what Viktor Frankl would call an existential vacuum. They have an emptiness in their existence. And I looked around, and some of these were Vanderbilt kids, and some of them were who knows what, and local high school kids. Most of them were younger than I was. There were very few older people there. And all I saw was people searching. And if I had had the chance, I didn't, because she had to take her friend out because he was in such bad shape. I wanted to ask her and, and say, you know, you know how many women I've met in their 30s that wish they weren't like you are in their 20s? They tell me that. I wish I wasn't like that. I say all that to say, we know the world is broken, we know people are searching, intellectually we know that. When you're around people, you, you feel, and it doesn't have to be a concert that's like that. And by the way, the fight I almost got in, this is the funny part, <laughs> there were these little girls like 15 years old, a whole group of them and, and their friends, boys that were about the same age, and this one Big man, about 300 pounds, was so inebriated, he was bumping into them and doing inappropriate things, and their little friends were trying to get him to go away. And one girl in particular he was picking on, and so I just pushed her up in front of me and stood in between them. And then he stood beside me, looked right at the side of my face and said, Hey! 
over and over. And in my head, all these thoughts are going through really quick. And I said a bunch of different thoughts. What am I going to do if we actually get in a fight? He's like three times bigger than I am. And uh, thankfully, we did it. Here's how it resolved. I gave him a hug. And he gave me a hug. And he said, hey, man, I'm Ray. Good to meet you. Sad. Kind of funny, but sad, right? Sad. But maybe even more sad is that God's people, because of bad theology, because of attacks of the enemy, because of uh, problems in our diet, because of problems in our culture, we encounter the same kind of despair, even though we don't have to. It's not an eternal despair. If you are saved, you will go to heaven, period. Because you're kept by the power of God. And yet, in this life, you can be completely miserable. You don't have to be. I, the church got a letter from a man from our sermons online uh, last week. And uh, this is what he said. He said, I was saved at one time in my life when I was about 20. But through bad choices over the course of time, I became neglectful and did not realize and recognize Satan's traps. I became addicted to painkillers because I was trying to get on disability for a back problem so I would not have to work. I'm 60 years old now and I'm slowly deteriorating physically and mentally. I feel the hope I once had is now gone because I didn't recognize my enemy's tactics to steal my crown and now I'm a slave to sin. Painkillers, impure thoughts... I'm dependent on many government programs at this time, and I will not be able to resist if the mark of the beast is implemented. I believe God has cut me off and removed his spirit from me for a few years now. I never thought I would end up in this position. I'm contemplating suicide. I'll read you what I wrote him back. I won't put his name here. I said, forgive my delay in responding. After receiving your email, I spent some time in prayer and spent some time praying specifically for you. The Lord has given me a message that's been stirring in my heart for some time now, long before your email. And that's today, that's what I'm going to preach. And if the Lord continues to lead me in this direction, I'll preach this Sunday. I feel this message would be a help to you, so keep an eye out for it on the Sermon Audio website, but I wanted to respond briefly. Your email brings up one of two possibilities. Either your current despair is meant to draw you to repentance and surrender to the Lord for salvation, or if you've truly been saved, then your current despair is what is common to all men at different times in our lives. I cannot know your heart or the condition of your soul or where you will spend eternity. Only you and God can know this. But if you have had a supernatural experience with God which resulted in a new birth like Jesus told Nicodemus about in John 3, then you may be in a spiritual battle for your mind and for your very life. If that is the case, don't give up hope. Brother, God doesn't give up on his children who fall. If you've been truly saved by the grace of God, he has forgiven you for all sins, past present, and future. The blood of Jesus is of infinite value, and for all who have truly come to him in faith and unconditional surrender, all of their sins are covered by his blood. The only way we can have confidence to the end is if the finished work is in Jesus' power, not in us or our actions. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it to the end. The Ephesian letter tells us that we're sealed to the day of redemption. This is a seal that cannot be broken. All of God's children are stamped with this seal, which says, this one is mine. 
Jesus prayed to his Father, Those you've given me I've kept, and none of them is lost. John tells us in his epistle, His seed, God's Holy Spirit, remains in us and we cannot sin. And yet Paul spoke of the battle that's so prevalent in men that he called it a law warring in his members. When I would do good, evil is present with me. When we understand what both John and Paul were teaching, it brings us a complete truth, which on the surface may seem like a contradiction. When God saves a man, he declares him righteous by the blood of Jesus, and no matter what that man may do, he is sealed into the day of redemption. That man is justified, he's declared righteous because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and what God has truly redeemed, what God has bought back can never be lost. And yet... The battle for our bodies rages on. Like Paul, I too find this law warring in my body. There's so many times I sin, and now I'm talking about myself, Brother Josh. But I know I'm saved because when I do sin, I have contrition and brokenness, and I desire the Lord's forgiveness, and He upholds me with His mercy, and He gives me an even greater hunger for His presence. I told him this, I faced many internal battles this year that have been greater than any I've faced in my life and in my last 12 years of trying to preach. A true life battle for, for my sanity and for my life at times. And through this, the Lord has revealed a truth to me. There are times that God cannot remove us from the battle at hand because we're soldiers and our job is to fight. Temptation itself is not sin, although temptation can lead to guilt, which in turn separates from the love of God, at least in our own minds for a time. And the adversary is always trying to destroy the good things of God, and he's always trying to destroy the children of God as well. Oh, how many times I've gotten to the end of my own strength and cried out to the Lord in complete, raw honesty. I can't do this anymore. You have to help me. And only in those times of repeated unconditional surrender have I experienced a strengthening for the battle at hand. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So I told him, I'll continue praying for you, and I, I want all of you, the church, to pray for him. The world is full of people like that. Turn to First Peter chapter 1. We'll go to First Peter 1, if you want to also put your finger... There, we'll also go to 1 Corinthians 10 and James 1. And I'll go through those quickly. 1 Peter 1, 1 Corinthians 10, and James 1, if you're making notes or want to mark it for later. Verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 1. I might read more of the chapter in a moment, but this is what's really in my heart. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Have any of you experienced that? You know what manifold temptations feels like? And he says it's a season. And that's the first thing I want you to realize, whether you're here. I don't know who needs this message, but I've been trying to preach long enough. I know God doesn't give a message like this unless people need it. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you will be later. Maybe today you're up on a mountain and you're happy and you're joyful in the Lord. Maybe you don't even need this message today, but you can pull it up on the internet. You'll need it by Wednesday or Thursday. That's the world we live in. 
Let me read the rest of these surrounding verses to give us a context. Third verse, he says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and it fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're in. In light of all of these doctrinal truths, he's saying, in light of the fact that you are kept by the power of God, in light of the fact that there's nothing you can do to lose your own eternal place in heaven, you greatly rejoice Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, may be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom though now you see him not, yet trusting and believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end or the completion of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." He says we may be in a season of heaviness or sorrow through manifold temptations. Another way that could be translated is through all types of trials. This is not simply talking about a temptation to have a lust you shouldn't have or to do something you shouldn't do. This includes the emotional burden of being brokenhearted about a family member or somebody close to you that their life is a mess and they can't do anything about it. It includes those kind of trials. It includes the kind of daily trials that we have in our own flesh that when I wouldn't do good, evil is present with me. It includes our own despair and discouragement. It includes this existential vacuum I I talked about. Truly. Why are we here? I've asked myself that question more in the last few years than I can imagine. About my own life. What am I doing here? What's the point of it? And not always in a way of despair, but in a very... Sincere, literal way. Why am I even here? I like being here. There's sometimes I'd rather not be. Be honest. And I never felt that way till lately. It'll be nice to go to heaven someday and be done with all these troubles and trials. He says if if you're in a season of heaviness through manifold temptations, if necessary. So I want you to think about what are some of the reasons that you might be in a season of heaviness or a season of trial, or a season of temptation. And these seasons may last longer than others. It may just be for a few hours, or a day, or a few weeks, or maybe a month, or could be for a long time. Or it could be that any time you think about a particular topic, or thing, or life experience, you're back in that that emotional season. Sometimes people can never let go of regret. Some people can never let go of bitterness. Some people can never let go of what that person did to me. Some people can never let go of the thing that you should have done that you never did. You can't go back to the past. But there are times that we face things that are too big for us, too hard for us, and too much for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, Therefore, there, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, There has no temptation taken you but what is common to man. It's what I told that brother. If he is a brother, I pray he is. You're depressed, you're down, you're sad. In this season, welcome to being a human. P. 
People need to be told that. There are times that life is unbearably difficult for Christians too. And it's not because you're a Christian. It's even worse for people who aren't. He says, No temptation has taken you but what is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you can withstand, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You know what the way to escape is? The Holy Spirit. It is brokenness. It's breaking yourself of all self-reliance. It's an unconditional, repeated surrender to God taking care of you. That's the way of escape. People use this verse as if it's some type of self-sanctification. Like God, God, they say that. Oh, the Lord will never give you more than you can stand. He does it all the time. That's the point. Will God ever give you more than you can handle? I preached a message with that title. Yes, He will, because part of the purpose of life is to recognize that you need Him. Yes, He will allow you to have more than you can handle. And when He does, you have to go throw yourself on that rock, that living bedrock at the bottom of the sea of all of your troubles. But it is comforting to know that no matter what I go through, other people go through it. And it's even more comforting to know that Jesus Christ, the forerunner of our faith, the archegos of faith, the author and finisher of faith, was tempted in every point as we are and yet without sin. And I want to take it a step further. Jesus was tempted in ways that we can't even comprehend. Have any of you ever been tempted to be God in the moment? Make bread out of these stones? Call some angels to take yourself off the altar, the cross. We've never been tempted like that. Oh, our temptations pale in comparison. And yet Jesus Christ was tempted in every way we are. Oh, He was human. He laid aside His glory. He laid aside His power. The only way He could know what it was like to be in our skin was to really be a human. He didn't go around mind-reading everybody He talked to and... and, uh, zapping him with some kind of psychological lightning bolts to make him agree with him. He was a human and he lived as a human. He got strength from his father through prayer and through meditation. He didn't just self-produce it. He knew what it was like. James 1 tells us this, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Listen to another translation, and I'll read a few additional verses. This is James 1, verse 12. I love this part. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Now let me pause there and tell you, that is where my heart is with this message. So many religious people. I've talked to people, some of my peers, who question whether they're really saved because they have tempting thoughts. And it's a real battle. Now, some of you who are a little more comfortable with being human will chuckle at that. Because it's not the temptation that's sin. It's giving in to the temptation and participating in it and being a slave to sin. It's actually a blessing to be tempted and withstand. It's a blessing. Because it allows the glory of God to shine through this broken vessel. When you get to the place, whether it's a temptation with some woman at work or whether it's a temptation with pride or with your ego or self-reliance or 
whether it's a temptation with eating something you could shouldn't, and you get to the point of smoking, drinking, whatever it is, where you say, Lord, I cannot withstand this on my own. You have to help. It might be a temptation that's as simple as feeling miserable all the time. You're not supposed to feel miserable all the time. God didn't make you that way. And yet, especially this culture we live in, we, we can feel that. I want to read you one other thing that was... Man, it hit me when I read it. This was written by a psychiatrist in the 50s, uh, late 40s, who made it through four concentration camps. I think he knew about suffering. But he, he talks about the present value system at the time, which now is just even more pronounced. And he says, such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. Do you understand that? We have a culture who their unhappiness is exacerbated. It's increased because they actually think they should be happy all the time. And I'm here to tell you today, you are a human. You won't be happy all the time. And yet what I just said is, you shouldn't be miserable all the time either. If you are, there's something wrong. Either you have some type of imbalance in your life, emotional, spiritual, biomechanical, structural, whatever it is, or you're in a spiritual battle, or you are going through something God is going to use to make you a better soldier. In the moment, we may not know the purpose of the suffering. In fact, we usually don't. And even years later, looking back on our lives, we often don't know the purpose. People ask these abstract, philosophical, theological questions. Is God doing this to me? Is Satan doing this to me? Is this a product of my own thoughts? Let let me tell you, it doesn't matter. The outcome is the same. You have a situation you're facing when you face it. And I need this message, and maybe I don't know if you all do or not, but I do. When you face these situations, it doesn't matter abstract philosophically why you're going through it. What matters is that you survive. And what you make of it. What God does with it. You may never know. That's God's realm. I need to say one more thing, because we have a lot of religious people who actually believe that suffering is preferable, that you should suffer to be holy. This is a man, as I said, who went through four concentration camps. He knew more about physical suffering than any of us. He said this, Let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided certainly that the suffering is unavoidable. If it were avoidable, the meaningful thing would be to avoid it. There are some religious people who need to hear me say that. You want to find meaning in the moment? If you can get out of your suffering, get out of it. If you can't, embrace it. There's some unavoidable suffering. But a lot of our suffering is self-imposed. He says, to suffer unnecessarily is masochistic not heroic. I've preached this before too. You think God's impressed with your suffering? You think He's impressed with your holiness? You think He's impressed with your self-sanctification? God doesn't get impressed. That's a human emotion. He doesn't get awed by anything we do. 
He spoke the universe into being. And there are religious people who actually believe they're going to bend God's heart by suffering. And so they intentionally suffer. That is a, it's a problem. And I want to tell you, first of all, if you're suffering, the first thing you may need to realize is, do you really have to? Like that song says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what pain we need, needlessly bear. I, that's not the right word. but Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Isn't that true? And how many times have you gotten to the end of your own personal strength and tried everything, and then finally you say, Lord, you have to help me. I'll carry it to Him in prayer. So let me continue what I was reading in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres. You can be blessed to suffer under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. One brother told me so profoundly, the world is always trying to seduce us. Your own desires... That's why young people, I, oh, I wish I could have told all those kids at that concert, flee youthful lust. These things that you're engaging in are going to destroy your life. Dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. I'm not splitting hairs. I'm telling you to have a tempting thought is not a sin. The sin is dwelling on it to the point that you want to bring it to fruition. What happened with David and Bathsheba, if he would have just been up there, looked out, recognized her beauty, and then said, I don't need to look anymore, and turned away? Not sin. The sin was looking who knows how long, how many days in a row? I don't know. Going back to his room, fantasizing about how he could get by with it, what it would take. You know he planned all that and then bringing it to pass, and then trying to cover it up, and then having her husband murdered because the husband was too righteous to abandon his men and go home and enjoy his wife, that was the sin. I believe that God was more displeased with the betrayal and the murder than anything else in that story. Although all of it was bad. The sin is not in the temptation. Listen to the rest of this. After the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You can become a slave to your sin. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Isn't that beautiful? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Let's turn to Second Peter. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because it's necessary to unpack what we're talking about. Second Peter chapter 1, second verse. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, according as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are giving unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these 
you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness. Any of you feel like this is a torture list? (laughs) I'm not naturally temperate, patient, none of those things. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. This is the important part. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Why is it important to go through temptation, trials? Let me pose that another way. Why is it important to have an authentic human experience? This stuff that Big Pharma puts out in American culture that you're supposed to be happy all the time, that is not, they're not happy. I work with a bunch of those people. They're flat all the time. It's different. There is no peak of joy. Everything is level and flat. The sorrow is level and flat and so is the joy. Jesus wants us to have an abundant life full of experience and full of extreme emotional variations because that's the human condition. There's this constant internal battle between what God made us for and the world that we're currently in. And that causes an emotional crisis inside of us. And that emotional crisis is supposed to be there so that we'll recognize something needs to change. If you're not saved, if you've never had the peace of God put inside of your heart, if you've never experienced new life, that internal despair, the brokenness, the emotional crisis is meant to make you get to the point that you cry out to a being that you don't even understand and say, you have to help me. That's what it's for. And if you sedate it all the time with drugs, marijuana, alcohol, legal drugs, which in some ways are even worse because they give the illusion of acceptability. What did that man that wrote the letter, pain killers, pain pills, that's what he got hooked on, ruined his life. Am I saying you should never take a pain pill? That's up to you. But be careful. Be careful, especially with psychotropic medicine. Be careful with anything that alters your mind's ability to perceive reality. Be careful with any substance I'll get to that in a minute. Substance abuse isn't all that we... It's more than what we think it is. This list here... Oh, I I love it. He gives a list of Christian virtues and that they build on top, one on top of the other and the foundation of it all is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The very foundational Christian virtue is faith. Everything else builds on... You know what? Faith really is believing that God will do what He said He'll do. Faith is trusting that He'll take care of you. Faith is knowing that... Like I heard one preacher say when his wife was going through an impossible bout with cancer, and he got to a point... She had gone through this multiple times, and he got to the point where he went and cried out to God in anger, frustration. And he said the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart... Do you want to be her father or do you want me to? And he said in that moment, he became completely surrendered. Just like David in Scripture when he said, let us fall into the hands of God, for God is merciful. It's better than being in the hands of man. And he gave her up to the Lord. And some of you have done that at different times in your life with different things. 
and God took care of her. But the foundation is faith. The one who lacks these things, in other words, the one who hasn't gone through meaningful trials, the one who hasn't experienced the difficulties of life, is so nearsighted that he's blind. King James says blind and cannot see afar off. But it's saying he's so nearsighted. All he can, don't you all know people like this? And sometimes we are people like this. All you can see is the immediate frustration in your own life, in your own heart, in your own mind in that moment. Totally nearsighted. You can't even see the person who's two feet away from you and their problems. And when we're that nearsighted, we're blind to the truth. We're blind to reality. We're blind to the condition and plight of the world. And so I say to you, and this is a truth that our minds need to accept, and then the Holy Spirit can put it in our hearts. There are times that suffering is good and necessary for the people of God because it reminds us what He saved us from. And not only that, it reminds us what the people in the world deal with. It reminds us we're human. It reminds us that He gave us a way to get out. What would be worse than forgetting what God saved you from? I mean, really, in this life, if you're a child of God, and I see this every revival season, all these people, and I'm not being critical of them, it's just a human condition. We see it in the Old Testament. For, for most of the year, they forgot what they were saved from, and now it's revival time, and we need to really hear from the Lord again. What about the rest of the time? I want you to hear this, especially here in this church, and I want all of God's true people to hear this. Sometimes we pray, remove this thorn from me, don't we? Paul prayed it three times. Why didn't he keep praying it for the rest of his life? Some present Christians need to (laughs) learn that lesson. There's a time that you keep asking like the importunate widow, going to the, the undressed ruler over and over and over, help me, help me, help me, help me. There's a time for that, but there's a time to say, all right. But even more importantly, sometimes our perspective is off. We pray, remove this thorn from me. But what if what you're struggling with isn't a thorn in your flesh, but rather a battle that you are in? There's a big difference in that. In other words, and I don't mean this to hurt your feelings, but it's not about you. Your suffering might not be a thorn in your flesh. It might be that you are out of place in the world you live in. It's a circumstantial battle. And I I said this, but I want to pose it in a question. What if this battle isn't about you? What if it's not about me? These seasons we go through of heaviness or emotional turmoil or temptation or suffering or sorrow, physical pain, financial hardship, mental anguish and worry, all these things may be a battle that God won't remove us from yet because God intends us to be good soldiers. Haven't you prayed for that? I have. I prayed for God to make me a good soldier. My most continual prayer And sometimes I have to experience the consequences of it. The journey to get there is for God to give me a greater hunger for Him than anything else in my life. But there's a cost to that. The cost is recognizing that nothing else in your life matters in comparison. And it's not a mental recognition. It's a complete emotional despair. 
when you recognize that. And then God can fill that vacuum with his presence and his love. But it's hard to get there. And I've never arrived at that place. I keep having to (laughs) get back to it all over again through more personal suffering. This battle we're in, part of it's the battle for the moment. Part of it is conditioning us for future battle. Any soldier, marine, airman, Navy SEAL, any, any of those people that have been in combat will tell you that combat training does not train you like combat does. It's not the same thing. Boot camp's not the same thing as active duty service. It's not the same. It amazes me in my job when, you all know this, I deal with the disabled veterans. And every now and then, I will come across a a bona fide Hollywood-style war hero. It's amazing. I mean, people who have been in three or four military conflicts, 30 years, and they're on the ground over and over and over, and somehow they make it through mostly psychologically normal. I don't know how that happens. It's amazing. But you know what? There's a spiritual parallel that there are people, that man, the best... Talk to somebody that goes to combat and they want to be under some NCO, non-commissioned officer who has been there over and over. Or if in a police force, you want to be under a sergeant who's done the job. In this spiritual battle we're in, I want to be under people who can mentor me, like Brother Hackett, who have lived life. You know, you remember telling me, I'm sure he does, he told me this years ago, he said a preacher goes crazy at least three times in his life. I don't know if this year that I've been dealing with is my second or third time, but I've been, I've been experiencing it. I mean it. I'm not being melodramatic. When I wrote to that man that I've been in a battle for my sanity and my life, I meant it literally. Why? Just like that man who... <laughs> I had one guy who was in World War II, Korea and Vietnam, all three. Combat. Talked to him. He had a same wife for like 60 years. And I'm sure he had suffering from that. But he still lived a normal life. As Christian soldiers, God wants us to be like that. To go through battle after battle, combat after combat. Sometimes the suffering that we are in in the moment. This is what the Lord showed me a little over, close to two weeks ago. I went through that. But here's the progression. Let me tell you this before I tell you that story. This pattern process that James shows us, it starts as a a temptation or a thought, and it turns into this emotional and psychological spiral into spiritual uselessness and physical uselessness to where you can hardly even function. That's what happens. And the first thing, you're tempted with a thought or a desire, an impulse, or maybe a memory, maybe a regret. No big deal. But then the temptation keeps returning or it won't go away. Then you feel guilty. (laughs) How can I say I want the Lord if I also want that? Or how can I say I want the Lord if I'm so quick-tempered? Or if I'm frustrated so easily, or all these things. Then comes the battle for your mind, and it comes, here's what I want you to know from the atmosphere. 
Ephesians 2.2 2 talks about the prince of the power of the air. That word air, the Greek word, it's fascinating. It is particularly the lower and denser air as distinguished from the higher and rarer air. In other words, the atmosphere that Satan inhabits is the same atmosphere we live in. He's here with us. We wrestle not against principalities and powers, and, and uh, that, that's what we wrestle against, spiritual wickedness in high places, principalities and powers. He's right here, but he's in the atmosphere. He's, he can move fluid. He can send his agents. And then comes the attacks of the adversary, which they do come and they address you, the second person. How can you even claim to be God's child with the kind of person you are? If you were really saved, you wouldn't be tempted like that. You ever had that thought? I've counseled some of my brothers through thoughts like that. How could I be saved if I'm tempted? Here's what I'm telling you today. The temptation's part of being saved. And in fact, it may be something that can be used gloriously in your life. Just don't become a slave to it. Don't indulge in the temptation. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about the taboo sins of our culture. I'm talking about that temptation to be depressed all the time or to be overwhelmed or to be angry. Those things, for me, those underneath emotions, those are the hard things. Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He spent 40 days in the wilderness and he had the, I believe, Satan himself tempting him. With things, like I said, all the things we imagine, all the things we can't even imagine. He was tempted more in those three short years of his ministry than we'll ever be tempted in our entire lives. He lived in our flesh, he breathed our air, and he conversed with the prince of the power of the air himself. He walked miles in our shoes. You know, everybody always says, walk a mile in my... Jesus literally walked miles in the shoes of men. He saw things we see and felt things we feel and knew things we know, and yet He never sinned. He laid aside the glory of heaven and became like us. He was in our skin, and yet He never sinned. So having explained that process, I I, I was dealing with that recently. No particular sin. I'll tell you what it was for me. It was this just sense of uselessness in, in what I do all the time, my job. Like, what is the point? That's how I felt. And it carries over into your life to the point where I became consumed with it and totally miserable and and not happy. And then I started to feel guilty (laughs) about not being happier. Unhappy about being unhappy. Right? Look what God's done for me. I should be happier than this. I shouldn't feel this way. I have my dream job. In some ways. I used to tell people my dream job is to work in swim trunks. I actually work in swim trunks. Uh, My heat is, not the heat, the air is way up in my house and I literally just wear swim trunks and I sit there and sweat all day and I love it. And yet I hate my job. (laughs) Circumstantially, it's the best thing I could ever ask for and yet I'm totally miserable. Part of it's legitimate. Part of it is this sense of existential meaninglessness of what am I doing. Part of it's a bad attitude on my part. But I believe this is what God showed me that finally gave me some relief from that personal torture. Part of it is me going through a trial so I can care about somebody else who goes through a similar trial. So I can relate. 
Have you ever noticed that? You can relate to somebody. The Lord showed me this when I was in college. I had a, a teacher who went through unimaginable difficulties with her health. And she was an agnostic, and God opened up door after door and hours of conversation where I got to talk to her about what the Lord did with me. And the only reason she listened to me is because I had suffered through Lyme disease. That's it. And so this present trial that you're going through, whatever it may be, the current trials that I go through, whatever it may be, God can redeem it. And like I read earlier, if there's no reason to suffer, fine, don't. But when you pray for the thorn to be removed and you realize the Holy Spirit shows you, this is not a thorn, brother, this is you in the middle of the world. That's when you stop praying for the thorn to be removed and instead you face the battle like a man or like a woman. That's part of the reason for battle is to make you a man or a woman. Somebody who's useful. Not somebody who goes around drinking bottled milk spoon-fed stuff all the time. It's so we can look at our suffering fellow humans with sincerity and say, I've been where you are. Do you want to know how I made it through? The goal of the human life, the goal of the Christian life, is not to have an existence that is unimpeded and happy and, and, and free and just perfect all the time. It's not possible, even as Christians. In some senses, Christians should be the happiest people in the world, but in some senses, this is the part that religious people don't talk about much. There's a greater weight of battle and trials as a Christian. And I want to submit this to the, the seasoned saints of God. And I think you all would agree with this when you think about it. Sometimes the fact that you're in the midst of a hard temptation is evidence that you've actually drawn closer to God. That you actually are closer to Him. That's one of the internal mental conflicts I've had lately. Lord, I feel like I know you better than I ever have in this season of my life, this last year or so. And, and I've I prayed to Him and said, you've given me messages that I can't even preach on my own. And yet, on one hand, I feel like I'm so much worse than I was as a young Christian. Remember Job? I'm not suggesting I'm like Job, but Job suffered because of his righteousness, not because he was unrighteous. Sometimes the temptation is a result of you actually wanting to be close to God. The only way to be close to Him is to, to make it. Though you are in heaviness now through manifold temptation, it's worth it. I'm going to close again by returning to, to Viktor Frankl. He, he, this is the man I quoted earlier who, who made it through those concentration camps. He lived to be 90-something, I think 93 years old. He developed a, a new therapeutic approach called logotherapy based on the Greek word logos, which means meaning or um, truth and we know that Logos, Jesus is the Logos. He's the truth and the meaning. And his theory was different than all the therapists before him. Sigmund Freud believed that every person in the world was motivated by a, a will to pleasure. In other words, everything we do is because of pleasure. Uh, Alfred Adler believed that everybody was motivated by a will to power. This man postulated that everyone 
is motivated by a will to meaning. And that if we know the why of the present circumstance, we can deal with almost any how. That's what he believed. And so he made it through these concentration camps, and it, it's amazing. I, I just read this man's search for meaning, the, the kind of things that they went through. And then he came back, and he taught for decades students, and he wrote books, and he performed therapy. And his goal was always to direct people to the meaning of the present. And a lot of them, I'm sure, eventually were directed to God. But when he got back, this is what I want you to hear. Knowing all of that and recognizing that the future was what would get them through the camps, when they finally got out and got home and got settled into normal life after the war was over, this is what he wrote to one of his friends. He says, this is September 14th, 1945. He says, now I'm all alone. Whoever has not shared a similar fate cannot understand me. I'm terribly tired, terribly sad, terribly lonely. I have nothing more to hope for and nothing more to fear. I have no pleasures in life, only duties, and I live out of conscience. And so I've reestablished myself and now I'm redictating my manuscript both for publication and for my own rehabilitation. A couple of well-placed old friends have taken on my cause in the most touching way, but no success can make me happy. Everything is weightless, void, vain in my eyes. I feel distant from everything. It all says nothing to me, means nothing. The best have not returned. Also, my best friend was beheaded, and they have left me alone. In the camp, we believed we had reached the lowest point, and then when we returned, we saw that nothing has survived, and that which we had kept us which had kept us standing, has been destroyed, that at the same time as we were becoming human again, it was possible to fall deeper into an even more boundless suffering. There remains perhaps nothing more to do than cry a little and browse a little through the Psalms. That man went on from that despair, and he said the emotional despair of returning from concentration camp was worse than being in the camp. He went on from that to spend another 50 or 60 years helping people. And one of his students asked him, actually, he posed it as a question to his students, what do you think is the meaning of my life? And one of them thought for a minute and said, the meaning of your life is to help others find the meaning in theirs. That's what he had written down. That was his destiny, his identity. And I say all that to say, This is how I'll conclude, I think. May God give us farsighted vision. May He replace our nearsightedness, our selfishness of our own present discomfort when we go through those things with the eventual purpose that it will bring about. And that's for all of of you who know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord yet, you're listening to this later, you can have peace. You can have a a rock of stability. You can have somebody to bring you through trials, struggles. You can have someone that when you do have that despair, it's not permanent. It's a season. And whatever you experience in this life, you've got a reward coming when you know the Lord. You can have that. It takes a surrender to Him. When God deals with your heart and when, when you recognize inside that there's something wrong... 
that there is an uneasiness, a discomfort, a disconnect. Maybe you've read some psychology and you think you have a mental disorder. And a lot of them say that something is a mental disorder that Frankel says all it is is, is a existential friction. Now that What I talked about, that, that emotional conflict inside. Because I want you to know this listening. If you don't know the Lord yet, you were made for another world. And you won't ever be fully comfortable in this one. Once God saves you, He gives you a peace and He gives you an understanding and a realization that you were made for another world and therefore you can live in this one and be uncomfortable and be okay with it. Peter wrote, Dearly beloved, I, pre- I, um, I beg you, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims that you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That Greek word you've heard me talk about is paroikos. It means one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship. Brothers and sisters, we live here in this world. We're not citizens of this world. Like the analogy I gave a few weeks ago, we're in this water world, but we were made for land. And lost person, I mean, you don't know what that word means, lost. Well, I use that term because everybody knows what it means to get lost, driving around or something, not know where you're going. That's how your life is if you don't know the Lord. It's aimless, it's pointless, it's lost. Like those people I told about at the concert at the beginning. Oh, wow, I wish I could sit down with some of them and look them in the face and pierce right through that shell of reckless partying and say, what do you have underneath except emptiness? And they would agree. That's the thing. And you listening to this, if you agree, if you understand, if you've reached a place of truth where you know that God is dealing with you or something is dealing with you, and you don't understand why you can't ever be happy, pray. Cry out to the being who made you. He's God, and He can save you. 